Hello, hello. This is Brooke DeVard, and you're listening to the Naked Beauty Podcast. This episode is for people that truly love beauty and people maybe that have a little bit of historical context around beauty editors and legendary beauty editors in the game. And Sarah Brown is one of those legendary beauty editors. I first got introduced to her work when she was writing at Vogue, writing some of what I thought were the most interesting stories. And of course, I was not even at the age where I could afford any makeup or skincare or anything that she was writing about, but I loved reading her writing. So I first learned about Sarah Brown's writing from reading Vogue magazine, but then I had the chance to intern at Vogue. And I would see her in the hallways and she always looked perfect. I mean, not a hair out of place, always a beautiful outfit, but a very distinct personal style and personal approach to beauty. She almost looked like she was from another era. Very pale, kind of alabaster skin, very short, closely cropped, curly hair. She's someone who, in addition to her writing standing out, she physically stood out. And Sarah was always someone that I admired from afar. So to be able to have her as a guest on Naked Beauty and really get into the work that she's doing with Violet Gray, but also just get into her career was such a pleasure. I will admit, coming from the mindset of being an intern and her being someone that you really respected and revered and looked up to, I was a little bit nervous. But as soon as we got on the Zoom, she started telling me about this amazing vacation she had just had in Turkey. Wait, when were you in Turkey? August. We spent a bunch of time in Istanbul. Then we flew to Cappadocia, which was so nice. incredible. Then we came back. We flew to Izmir. And from Izmir, we went to Ephesus, which was oh, great. Wow. And then we also went to, what's it called? Where the, the white sort of baths are. It's Pamukkale. Yeah. yeah, we did that, which was like incredible. And I was like... You know what? At the end of the day, I'm talking to someone who loves beauty. And Sarah and I have a lot in common. We're both from New York. We both get really excited about beauty. And I will say that one of my big takeaways from this conversation is she is an editor and someone who truly loves her craft and who is always pushing to reinvent herself, but also pushing for like the new and exciting in beauty. It is a crowded landscape. There is a lot of clutter. There's a lot that is competing for our attention. But when it comes to what makes the violet gray cut and what makes her, Sarah Brown, excited about a new product, it was really great to hear from someone that has so many years of experience and is so seasoned and has seen it all. So in addition to Sarah being really smart, having deep, deep background in the beauty industry, in editorial, I also just loved getting to go deep on what it means to have a curated edit. What does it mean to have a really curated edit? How does violet gray pick amongst all of these incredible brands and products that are being made all of the time? How do they really hone in on what the ultimate cleanser, moisturizer, eyebrow pencil is? We even get deep into fragrances she's really excited about. We really could have talked about product for an entire other hour. The passion for the subject matter is so evident. I know you all are going to love this conversation. Thank you so much for the support. Subscribe if you are not subscribed. New episodes every Monday. And let's get into my conversation with Sarah. You'll know real when you get it. It will say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things that you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, 
Solon logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Sarah, you grew up in New York City. I also grew up in New York City, but not in the kind of cool downtown Soho art scene that you were exposed to from a very early age. And I'm wondering if it made an impression on you when you were young. Yeah, growing up in New York is amazing. You know this, but people who haven't grown up in New York are always very fascinated by people who grew up in New York. They think it's very unusual. And I guess it's unusual unless you grew up in New York. And if you grew up in New York, it's it's normal. It's, it's what you right. know. All your friends, all your childhood friends were from New York, too. The city's really your playground. I grew up downtown in Soho. My mom was a gallerist and had a gallery a couple blocks from our loft. I went to high school on the Upper East Side. So, oh, What I, high school did you go to? I went to Dalton. Oh, wow. I went to Spence. So. Oh, cool. Yeah, so I felt fluent in, in two parts of the city, downtown and uptown. Yeah. Growing up in Soho and in the art world and amongst all these creative people, definitely taught me to be curious and to be creative. It, you know, it also, I think, taught my brother and me to be really just like you had a sort of expansive mindset because you were exposed all the time to so many different kinds of people. You, you really appreciated people. You loved people who were a little bit weird because you understood that they were brilliant at something. So I feel like it's insight into eccentricity at an early age, right? Like this idea that you yeah. can be brilliant and eccentric and dance to the beat of your own drum and still also make money from that, like seeing an artist as a profession. Yeah. And also just like the deep intellectualism. And I really, really love conceptual art, probably because I was raised around it. So the idea that something is beautiful, but it's also interesting. And sometimes it's beautiful because it's interesting. And also just my mom always really impressed upon me that when you see a show or you see a work and you have a strong reaction to it, positive or negative, or it bothers you or you are thinking about it a lot afterwards, that means it was good. When you see a movie and you just hate the movie and it makes you so upset and you're dreaming about it, you're thinking about it and you, versus yeah. a movie that you see and it's funny, you never think about it again. It's like there's something about that that has struck a chord with you that has made you think. So I think that growing up in that world, just growing up in New York in general, New York is or was or still is the center of the world. At least when I was growing up, it's where everything was happening and you felt this sense that anything was possible here. The point that you made about being able to navigate uptown and downtown is really interesting because I feel like those two worlds are much more melded now, but back like even pre-2000s, I feel like it wasn't a thing or people that lived uptown didn't really go downtown and vice versa. I can remember even at school, like going with friends of mine downtown and they're like, are we still in Manhattan? Like they just like <laughs> never left the Upper East Side. Yeah, totally. My friends, they were all Upper East Siders in high school and their parents didn't want them to come down to Soho to go to my house because it was dangerous. And we lived in this great loft building, this like beautiful building where the lobby was, the marble was all like ripped up and the elevator never worked. And so they thought it was like really like to want the eels place. But then you got into this like 3,000 square foot loft full, filled with art that, you know, was really beautiful. We'd put the walls up ourselves. I mean, it was very like 80s, 90s New York, but 
yeah, my brother and I were more fluent in the city than a lot of people. That said, my husband laughs at me because, first of all, I have a terrible sense of geography. Like, I still get lost in the West Village. Like, I need that growth system. I have a terrible sense of geography. And also, I'm very much a Manhattanite. And so he's endlessly amused by how little I know about anything that's outside of Manhattan, frankly. As we just didn't, like, you just didn't grow up going there. And you grow up in New York and you live in New York. You don't do the touristy things. Or you do the touristy things, but you don't do them as a tourist. Like, for example, tea at the plaza at the Palm Court. My mom and I would just do that from time to time because she'd say, let's have tea. But it wasn't like a photo op. Right. So we would have family dinner at Odeon and Indochine because that they were neighborhood places. But when you come from outside of the city, you're doing things as someone who's new to the city, right? So it's just, it's like a different experience of the city. You brought up Indochine and going there when you were young. Did you have an impression of beauty from an early age? Because I'm just thinking about all of the famously, the hostesses and the hosts at that restaurant are always beautiful people and have been like since it's been opened. Yeah. From a young age, did you understand like this is beauty and this is powerful and this this is something that I'm seeing around me? Did you feel beautiful? I didn't think about beauty like that. I think that for me, really due to my mother, I grew up feeling very confident. And I think that when I think about beauty in general, I really think about confidence. I also grew up feeling not beautiful, honestly, like feeling really uncomfortable in my skin because I looked so different from what was sort of the the beauty norm of the day. Didn't look like the typical sort of John Hughes movie, like cheerleaders and all that. It was never going to happen. It's not me. But growing up in the art world, the art world is a place that prizes people who are different. I've written about this a bunch of times, but I wrote a piece for Vogue that I wrote it in like 2003 maybe but people still stop me and say i remember that piece people will remember that piece and it was called what's my era and it was about oh, yes i know this i know, you this know story. the piece. So it was about feeling like i was out of my era like yes. i belonged to a different time and had i lived in a different time specifically the italian renaissance uh late 1400s i would have been like the beauty of the day i had the coloring and the hairline and the hair the small lips and like all of these features that were prized then, but really not now. But what I grew up with, this is very much because of my mother, because of being in the art world, I felt that what was different really is what makes you interesting. And I didn't want to blend in with everyone else because that's not very interesting. I always did want to be distinct. So that's where I drew whatever confidence I had, knowing that like I had something that other people didn't have. Yeah. And that also everybody wasn't going to get it, by the way. It also allows you to filter out the people that will get it, will get it, and then everyone else. Yeah. And I really did grow up feeling special and feeling like I had something that I should be proud of. And also a lot of it is you just keep telling yourself that and hope that one day you really believe it. So that's a lot of what I wrote about in that piece. How do you get comfortable with yourself? A lot of how I got comfortable with myself was just the knowledge that it's not going to change. So you can get on board or be miserable. So you might as well find something to like about yourself and lean in. And in terms of even hearkening back to earlier beauty trends and styles, I feel like you've always done these beautiful kind of finger waves. You've always looked to beauty inspiration beyond the decades that we're currently in. Oh yeah, I mean, that's out of my era. Like I should have been a flapper. I should have been in the 20s or the 30s. Like literally I would have been the Kardashian of that time. <laughs> that's like what I'm working with. And so again, 
lean in. The thing that's so interesting is you see so many people, like rather than embrace the thing that makes them unique, you see them fight against it and like color their hair a certain way or straighten it. Or obviously we're living in an era where cosmetic surgery is, has become so commonplace that more and more people look alike. How do you think culturally we'll get to a place where difference is more celebrated and accepted? I think we've done a lot of work to get to a better place. I mean, when I was growing up and even in my early years of magazine writing and editing, we were working with a very narrow beauty standard. We celebrated very specific kinds of beauty, even just in terms of like thin, tall. I mean, that was what was attractive and desirable and everything else was outside of the norm and you didn't really talk about it. And you ignored the fact that most of the world or the country isn't thin and tall. Or just the, even the idea that that's not the only thing that should be celebrated or that you should aspire to. So I think that we are a way more inclusive society now. I think that we talk about these things a lot more. I think that people of all shapes, sizes, colors feel like they should be celebrated for what makes them special, different, beautiful, people celebrating themselves. I think there's a lot of work we've done. This goes hand in hand, in my opinion, with mental health and with how do we treat ourselves? How do we talk about ourselves and how do we talk about other people? So I think that the beauty standard has expanded exponentially. Do I think it's where it needs to be ultimately? Not necessarily. We're always going to be evolving, but I do think that we are a way more inclusive place right now, just in, in terms of everything. Don't you feel that way? I mean, it's much different than it was. I do. I think if I can take a step back and zoom out, I can see that we've come so far. But then when I just think about, I've lived in LA for just under a year now, I see a lot of similar aesthetics happening too, in a way where I worry about like a kind of copy and paste approach to beauty that social media has kind of like perpetuated as well. I mean, I think social media is really damaging. I have a lot of feelings about that. But the thing that's so interesting is that, per your point, for the longest time there was, let's just take body type, right? For the longest time there was one body type. Well, it changed, right? So you had the sort of supermodel body type. Let's just say it was like a Cindy Crawford. And then it went into like a, a Kate Moss, right? We had heroin chic. And then the supermodel came back, right? And it was, And then it was like about Giselle, right? It was about like major curves. But it was still all within the framework of like, you're tall, you've right. got these perfect proportions, you're tan. For me, like I'm so pale, like I was never going to be, I was never going to be tall, I was never going to be tan. There were so many things that I was just never going to be. But anyway, so that was all very, very specific and no amount of like working out was necessarily going to get you there. And then honestly, the Kardashians came along and they really changed the conversation in terms of what did we find attractive and desirable and aspirational in terms of body type. And it was like a completely different body type that, by the way, was also totally impossible for most people. There's always some ideal that's held up that like most people can't achieve. And so will we get to a place one day where every single body type, every single type of feature is like the one you want? No, because that's not how you define trends. I mean, look at TikTok, the fact that we're like all, we're chasing whatever's viral tomorrow, which will be over in two days, but we've got to chase it right now because it's a trend, right? It's like our society, this is how it operates. It operates based on trends and being obsessed with something and running after it really fast. And and we contribute to it. It's about marketing and selling things. If we weren't all trying to sell things, would we be talking about this stuff? I don't know. I'm yeah. curious about your jump from studying art history at Vassar to working at Elle 
in the 90s. So I was obsessed with magazines since I was 10 years old. All I wanted to do was work at a magazine, be at a magazine. I loved magazines. I collected them. I went from 17 magazines straight to Vogue and Elle, which were magazines my mom got. And I thought I wanted to be maybe in advertising or something. I didn't really understand what I wanted to do, but or maybe a graphic designer. I used to cut them up and make collages and make new magazines out of these magazines. And I was mm-hmm. obsessed with the models and obsessed with the still lives of jewelry and makeup and everything. And I just loved magazines. And so I got an internship at Art Forum when I was in high school because my mom was in the art world and it was very easy for her to call Art Forum and say, can my daughter come over two days a week and just like put her around? So that was my first introduction to magazines. And then I went to college and I went to a liberal arts college. And again, my mother really, and I have two great parents, by the way, I know I talk about my mom a lot, but my mother said, this is a liberal arts degree. It's going to prepare you for nothing except critical thinking and how to be a good cocktail party guest. So study whatever you want, because this isn't a vocational career. You don't want to be a lawyer. You don't want to be a doctor. Like I wasn't trying to be anything that I needed to go to graduate school for necessarily. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so she just said, study what's interesting to you. And I didn't want to be an English major because it felt like a cliche to be at a liberal arts school and be an English major. And also everybody at Vassar was an English major. And then everybody else was like a women's studies major. And I felt at the time, and I'm so glad I made this decision, that art history was looking at the entire world through the lens of art. So even though we were studying art and architecture, we were talking about history. We're talking about political science. We were talking about women's issues. We were talking about gender and race. We were talking about just everything because art reflects culture. And so it was this amazing way to study the whole sort of history of time, all the social movements, music, everything, literature, but just through a different lens. It was great. And um, I minored in French culture, which is also a love of mine. And I wasn't trying to be prepared for anything. I was also like, I just wasn't worried for some reason. I just was not stressed out in college. It's an immense privilege to be able to study what you're just interested in and also to have the support from your parents to say, you can do this. Because I think most people choose their major with the acknowledgement that like my parents have made this big investment or sacrifices and I have to go out and make money. And to be free of that and to really truly study what you're passionate about or what just naturally interests you is incredible. So it's also a credit to your parents for empowering you that way. Yeah, absolutely. It was a tremendous privilege. When I was getting out of college, everybody was trying to get a job. And I was just, I don't know, I just wasn't, I hadn't been doing that. So I was in the career development office flipping through these books of things to do after you graduate. And I saw this thing for the Radcliffe Publishing Course, which is now the Columbia Publishing Course. I'd never heard of it, but I knew Radcliffe was part of Harvard. And that sounded impressive, right? And I was interested in magazine publishing. And so I applied to that and was lucky to be accepted. And I went to Radcliffe after I graduated and just spent the summer there killing time, basically, and soaking up everything I could and learning as much as I could about the publishing industry, book publishing, magazine publishing. It was just sort of like a little mini finishing school for publishing. And then while I was still at Radcliffe, like in the Last week or so, I wrote a note to Jean Godfrey June, who was the beauty director at Elle, and I had been an intern at Elle during my maybe sophomore year of college, and I had been put in the beauty department just randomly. Like I hadn't asked places there. Wow, I was just placed there. I just wanted to be in magazines, and I applied for an internship at Elle, and was just put in 
the beauty department. I didn't even know there was a beauty department. But anyway, I loved Jane. And then the next summer, I did an internship at Harper's Bazaar in the beauty department. And I applied to the beauty department again because I felt like I had experience already in the beauty department somewhere. And so they would take me. I I had liked it. So I said, oh, I'm going to do that again. I better get the job because I've already got experience. So I wrote a note to Jean saying, I've just graduated college and I'm going to be back in town in a couple weeks. And she happened to have a spot in her department. Her assistant had very suddenly quit. And so I literally came yeah. back from Radcliffe. Oh my God, all the stars aligned. It came back from Radcliffe. I interviewed with Jean and I think like three days later, I started working as her assistant at Elf. So in beauty and I hadn't taken any writing classes in college. I had been writing, of course, but I hadn't taken any English classes except for the one that you have to take. I had no training in anything really. And I never thought of myself as a writer. And Jean just asked me to start writing some things because I think it was like there was no one in the department. She had a, a, a couple of vacant positions. And so it was just because there was no one else around. So she said, give it a try. So I started writing things, which most assistants at magazines, at least at that time, they would never have been interested to write anything, but like desperate times. And Jean started editing me and all of a sudden I was writing little tiny things but all of a sudden I was writing and so I never knew that I was a writer I never aspired to it but I became a writer and I was in the beauty department because that's where I had landed that's incredible and to have Jean Godfrey June as your first editor for your first oh job for like I mean truly the stars all aligned but I think it's interesting knowing that you have such an appreciation for history and that you chose to study art history everything you wrote to me always seemed very well researched and then I think about pieces that are written now, totally different landscape, right? And they're up against different factors. But I feel like there is like a lack of research and like historical knowledge that I at least see when I read beauty writing today. Do you feel like there's a less of an emphasis or importance placed on historical context for beauty writers now? I think just what journalism is today is very different than what it was. And it's not just beauty. I think that magazines have gone through such a transformation and now there's such a focus on online and the online beast is just, it's like, I always think of like a wood oven. You just keep having to shovel wood in and it just keeps burning it up. It's just insatiable and you just have to keep feeding the beast. And so you can't take the time you would have taken before. You don't wait for a magazine to come out every month. You don't pour over every page. It's just like the the landscape has changed so much. So it's like, it's almost not fair to compare them. But I do agree with you. And this is as an observer, I think there is, in some cases, far less rigor. It's just not rigorous. There, People don't research things. And if they hadn't, haven't seen it on Google or TikTok, they're not, it's not a thing. Do you know what I mean? Also just editing. I mean, the rigor that was applied to editing and what good writing was and just also writing that wasn't good enough. I mean, growing up at Vogue, the standard was so high. And if you couldn't meet that bar, you did not deserve to be there and you wouldn't be there. And so it was just constantly trying to meet that bar and to produce work that was good enough to be in the magazine. And so as a writer, as an editor, like that's what was exciting about working there also. And what I appreciate so much about the, the environment, it was every single person who was there, whatever their job was, was the best at what they did. It was like this absolute all-star league and everybody worked so hard and the standard of excellence was so high and you had to meet it, but also you wanted to meet it because there were people who had the same values. And so 
These days, things are just different, but I think that there's also some great journalism happening, and it's bubbling up in all kinds of exciting places. I think that there's a lot of great stuff to read, and I get really excited when there's a writer who I want to read or I get excited by their byline. Who excites you? Like, do you subscribe to any sub stacks? Are there any new writers that you're following and think have an interesting voice? I'm liking right now. I'm liking Puck News. Oh, okay. Yes, I haven't really gone into it, but I've heard of it. I'm liking Puck. I'm liking Airmail. I think Town and Country is really fun. I've come back to Vanity Fair a bit. And yeah, there are, there are like newsletters here and there. It's just like a television. It's like there are so many channels. It's not necessarily about the big guys or about the sort of network TV. There's just a lot more to read and there are a lot more to discover. But back in the day, in terms of history and knowing your history, and I, I hope that people look up to the to these writers, but like Andre Leontali, Hamish Bulls, Billy Norwich, Tara Moore, Tim Blanks. But like they had and still have just like an encyclopedic knowledge of fashion, art, whatever they were writing about, right? And so that's why when you read their work, it's such a pleasure because just the depth of what they're talking about is incredible. And it's just the idea that you need to know about yesterday in order to talk about today and in order to talk about tomorrow so just having this knowledge and understanding context in terms of beauty fashion literature music politics art like whatever it is you have to have that perspective and that context you spend 22 years at vogue in total before you go to violet gray I mean, I was at Vogue for 15 years. I stayed on as a contributing editor. So maybe if you're looking at my LinkedIn, you're probably looking at that. I left to start an advisory business. And that was really valuable to me in a lot of ways. And I did a lot of things that I never would have done otherwise. I was on a TV show. I wrote a book with Norma Kamali. Like I did all kinds of stuff. I helped Business of Fashion establish their beauty vertical and started doing different kind of writing. Also, like I had a hand in a lot of brands and their development. And so it was great. And I was, I was ready to leave Vogue. I had been there for such a long time. Yeah. It was really hard to leave, as you can imagine. But it was the right time to bookend that. And then, yeah, I came to Violet Gray about two and a half years ago. Amazing. In terms of your role at Violet Gray, what attracted you to the opportunity? And how does the way that you do your work at Violet Gray align with your beauty philosophy? Well, I came to Violet Gray because Cassandra and I have been friends forever. We go back to the founding of Violet Gray. That's when I met her, when Brooke Wall introduced us. And Cassandra was sniffing around me and seeing if I wanted to come move to LA and work at Violet Gray. And I did not want to move to LA and I did not want to work for the internet and I did not want to leave Vogue. But I was excited to know her and we've always danced around, should we work together? And we've talked over the years about how would we collaborate? What would we do together? And it was never the right time for me. And during the pandemic, she was working on a project and she called me and we just started working on something together. And then she proposed coming to Violet Gray. And at first, I think it was pitched to me as a sort of a a project. And so she sent me the statement of work And I'm looking at the statement of work and I said to her, this looks like a job. (laughs) Is this a project or is this like a job? And she said, do you want it to be? And I said, yeah. So it was just the right time. And so she created this role for me, which was leading what we call the Violet Lab. 
And the Violet Lab is basically our hub of innovation and creativity and sort of fun. It's the home of curation at Violet Gray. So what I lead now is curation. So everything we sell, every brand, every product is handpicked with such care you can't imagine. So curation, also the Violet Code and the Committee of Industry Experts, which is really what sets us apart from everyone else. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. I also lead brand. So I'm head of brand at Violet Gray, as well as content and creative. I wasn't actually doing content and creative before, but I've taken that on now. And we've been doing really exciting work that I'm proud of. That's a lot of work. It's been like getting an MBA. It's been such an education for me and such an honor. And I take it super seriously because Cassandra always talks about this and it's really true. We work for the customer. Customers are boss. We do this because we want you to trust us a million percent. Common threads that I'm seeing between all of your work experience. One, the like absolutely incredible work ethic that you honed and sharpened at Vogue, but also you said that you were interested in beauty in service to the customer and in, in service to the reader first when you were writing stories, but now you're in service to the violet gray customer. And the curation is just, I can tell how thoughtfully done it is. What is the kind of testing process? Because I know it's rigorous, but before something even gets onto the Violet Gray website, what type of testing does it go through? Well, first of all, it goes through the curation team and it's got to be, am I obsessed with this? Do I want it? Do I feel like you want it? Am I going to be able to stand it if we don't have it? Because I'm just, I'm super competitive and... It's a combination of my own nature and a lot of years at Vogue, I need to feel like what we're doing is the absolute best and that I stand behind it eight, 8 trillion percent and I just need to feel like it's the best. So do we need it? And do, do we feel like it's best in class? The whole point of Violet Gray is that it's a really tight edit. Like we don't want a lot of stuff. The, the reason why it's fun to shop and why we think it's easy to shop is because we cut through so much of the clutter and the noise. It's like a closet where everything in the closet is the perfect piece. And so it's constantly evolving and revolving. I love getting rid of things because I want to bring in the new thing that you have to be obsessed about. But if there's the old thing that we love, that old jacket that's 15 years old, but nobody cuts a jacket like that anymore, we keep that jacket. We think of our assortment the same way, right? Where it's hyper edited and it's the best stuff. And the code, the seal of approval, means that you know it has been rigorously tested by us and our committee of industry experts, and you know you can trust it. And so it's worth the money, and it's going to work, and we stand behind that. And so, you know, the whole point, and this is really quoting Cassandra, is to enable the customer to make a confident purchase decision. That's just, that's completely what it is. So you don't have to say, is this worth it, or is this going to work? People like things and don't like things for different reasons, but we can seriously guarantee that every single thing we sell is really good. So once we decide that we need it, and we need it because maybe there's a hole in our assortment or we're under-penetrated in something like we could use, we need more products for curly hair, or we could have a better lash growth assortment, whatever we need. So we, d- we determine that we need the thing. We then send it to the committee of industry experts for violet code testing. And so what that is, is we have this committee of over 200 people and they're experts in their fields. They're dermatologists, plastic surgeons, makeup artists, hairstylists, brow gurus, nail technicians, nutritionists, OBGYNs, sex columnists, you name it. Like we've got, it's just like everybody's beauty and wellness. And we 
determine a testing group for each product, people who are uniquely qualified to vet something. We send it out and, and tell them to play with it for a month. And then they tell us what they think. And we get feedback from them. And if it gets 70% feedback, it passes the violet code. It earns the seal. The seal cannot be bought, can only be earned. And then we can launch it. And then when it doesn't pass, we don't launch it. And also, by the way, when it doesn't pass, we frequently share that critical feedback with the brands. And it's really helpful because they're getting this like intense focus group. And the thing that makes me really proud is that there are there's more than one instance where a brand has tweaked packaging, they've put more information on their website, they understand they need to explain something better, they've reformulated something because they've gotten this critical feedback by people who are experts and who had something to say about it. Well, if you need a beauty podcaster to join this committee, I volunteer myself. Excellent. Thank you. You try so many things. You see so many things. I have to know, what are you excited about? I get really excited when there's something that I haven't seen before. Do you know what's a great brand that I'm excited about? Farah Hamidi's line. Farah is a makeup artist. She's amazing. She's done so much beautiful work in terms of editorial, in terms of runway. Does a lot of work with Vogue. She works with Paloma Alcesser a lot. She works with a lot of like really amazing female photographers like Zoe Gertner. She's Afghani. She's created this line that's great. And so she showed me, I actually have it here, by the way, got visual aid for you. So this is the first product and you can see the, you see how chic her little logo is. And so it's a compact. It's very violet gray because it's super edited. So it's a compact that comes in two reds and two nudes. And so there's a cool red and then there's a warm red. The, the idea is that there would be a red for every different skin tone, really. Do you have cool undertone or warm undertone? And then there's a nude for a, a cool nude and a warm nude. And so it's this balm on top. And then it's like a sort of very like velvety, blurry lip color on the bottom. And she's got a great lipstick brush that you use with it. But you can just dab it on. This looks like really intense and intimidating. It's not though. It's a really comfortable chic red. And it's refillable. This pops out. So we launched this brand exclusively. I just have to say the balm being separate, I feel like is so brilliant because I could also imagine you could do that for like cheek as well. And I love the packaging. She has more things coming. And, but there was like a clarity of vision. Like I think you asked me a question somewhere here about what are the aspects that make us attracted to something. This is why I bring up Farah. It's a great example because it's an amazing founder, right? So it's someone who we want to get behind. And this is very much why this job is so similar to my Vogue job, that I like to uncover news. I like to scout talent and tell the world about it. And I like to tell the world about it first. And so that's very much like my sort of journalistic storytelling background, right? And, and being an editor saying, that's the one. So I was doing it to one extent at Vogue and I do it to a different extent at Violet Gray, but I'm still finding the thing first and telling you about it and telling the story. So very strong founder whose story we wanted to tell who I wanted to get behind because I believed in her and admire her talent and her career is incredible. And she's just at the beginning of it. So I just wanted her to be part of our gang. I mean, we have a real family at Violet Gray and she needed to be in it. So the breakfast where I met her, not only did I ask for the exclusive for this, for this brand, but I also put her on our committee immediately. So strong founder story, interesting product that has a real point of view and that is different from other things. There's a good sustainability story in terms of packaging. 
just checked all the boxes. I think one thing that you and I share in common is wanting to find people early on. I interviewed April Gargiulo, Bittner's daughter. This was even before she had the essence when it was just the serum. I interviewed Giada, the founder of Amicole, before she even launched Amicole. And Dr. Shaniv Genetan of Epilogic's first podcast interview, and they had just launched. And those are all brands that you carry at Violet Gray. And I'm sure you've watched a lot of founders grow over the years from like the very, very beginning or in just like a nascent idea to having a mature business. Definitely. It's this real privilege to be on the journey with them and to help them grow. And a place that's as small as Violet Gray, we're able to really like we're as much an advertising and marketing partner as we are a retailer. Like sometimes I forget that, oh, yeah, we're supposed to be selling stuff. I mean, we're just collecting things that I love that I think people should know about. And then we are trying to be part of the story and helping build brands. That's really what we do. And Cassandra had a huge hand in building Botter and had a huge hand in building Sturm. This is all before I got to Violet Gray. But it's really so much of what Violet Gray does very specifically. The first brand I brought to Violet Gray was Eighth Day. I'm happy that you're bringing up Eighth Day because I really want to go in on the formulation because everyone that I talk to is obsessed with this brand and thinks that they're amongst the most innovative in terms of skin regeneration. It's such a good brand. Tony Nakla is an expert in his field, so he has just absolute authority in terms of what he's doing. He's a skin cancer surgeon and a wound healing specialist. These ingredients are able to penetrate the layers of your skin and get into your skin cells and talk the same language. His tagline is we speak the language of skin. If you think of like your skin as like a switchboard, they're able to flip all these switches on to create rejuvenated skin. It's a great brand. And the, the serum is so good. That's really the hero product. I mean, all the products are great. The tonic is really good. It's an exfoliating essence. It's a toner, but it's like liquid fire. It makes everything you put on after that penetrate much better. He recommends using it twice a day if you can get to that place, but it's such a good product and everything's formulated with a lot of integrity. He's great. It's a, a great example of a brand that we were fortunate enough to launch at Violet Gray and tell the story. And again, like we were just collecting family members. What are you using day to day that you really love? Maybe I'll just ask you just skincare because I'm sure there's like 25 things. There's so much. There's so much. And I honestly, like I brought, I have a sort of array of stuff in front of me because there's just, there's way too much. Show and tell. I can do a little show and tell. And this is by no means everything. And also what I'm using changes week to week, month to month. Sometimes I wish I could just get into a groove and find what really works for me and just do that. And maybe my skin would look amazing if I could actually stick to stick to a regimen. But the nature of my job is that I need to try as many things as possible. Again, not everything's from my hair type. Not everything's from my skin type. My job is to say the Violent Gray customer would benefit from this. doesn't have to be I benefit from it. Or I need it or even I like it because there's lots of personal preference. But in terms of the things that I love that I'm using right now, do my show and tell. Here we have the eighth day serum, the hero yeah. serum I'm talking about. It's great. It's a constant. I love it. It's a staple. Also, this is an exclusive that we've launched recently that everybody should try, Angela Kalia. She's an incredible facialist. Well, you're in LA. We should put you together with her because she's amazing. She's very cool. But anyway, this is the, the Cell Forte Serum that's exclusive at Violet Gray. We just launched it. It's sold out two or three times already. And this has conditioned human stem cell media. I think that's what it's called. But basically, it doesn't have any human DNA in it, so don't be worried about that. But it, you need your, your own 
body, your cells to recognize this stuff. Otherwise, yeah. they're like, who's that? It doesn't do anything. Maybe it will hydrate you. But in terms of making an actual difference in your skin, not going to do much. And so that's what this kind of science is about. So people are freaking out over this. I've been using it. I'm trying to use up the entire bottle because Angela talks about the effects she's seen in her skin that are just insane. And she said, give it a month. And wow. so I'm giving it a month and I want to be totally transformed. I know. We transformed. I'm very excited to see what this can do. So this is yeah. a product people are excited about. I mean, nothing's ever going to be as good as Bentner's daughter. I have to tell you, I've taken a break from the active botanical serum. And I, for some reason, the cleanser to me is just like the best cleanser I've tried. But I feel bad because it's $100 and people are like, do I need to spend $194 on a cleanser? I and I'm like, it's pretty phenomenal. I think that if it brings like extreme joy to your life, then do the girl math. Like how much is that right. day? Is it worth it to you? Does that improve your life? If it improves your life, then I say go for it. We're so lucky if we can find something to truly love. We call it expensive, but worth it at Violet Gray. So for you, that's expensive, but worth it. Do you know who also makes good cleansers? Suzanne Kaufman makes really good cleansers. Do you love the Suzanne yeah. Kaufman cleansers? There are two of them that I love. There's the gel one and the oil one. They're amazing. But the thing that's cool about April and Vintner's daughter is that she's been in business 10 years now and she's only got three products. I mean, she really took the time to formulate things without any compromise and to take it slow and to build heroes. And that is such smart business. And I love brands where there's like one or two things you have to have. Another example is, do you know Emily Heath? No. So this is a brand that we just brought on. And I there are three products in the brand. There's a lipstick, a nail polish, and then this, which is called Full Up Brow Powder. This is the only thing I brought on from the brand because I was obsessed with this personally. And it's just like, people need to know about this. We need it. And we also, we love a hero at Violet Gray. We love that thing that's just like, this is the best in its class. And so it's a brow powder that you can just swipe it on and it just like makes an eyebrow where there is no eyebrow. Interesting. Oh, so good. And it's just, it's, it like pumps up your brow because it's got these sort of little particles that stick to your brow. It pumps up your brow and fluffs it up and fills in. And Emily, who's a makeup artist, who's the founder, she says that she uses this to fill in little spots in her hairline. She uses it as an eyeliner in a pinch. It's just one of those great, like everything products. It's really culty. So I love that. Okay. Back to the greatest hits. Epilogic. Look at how much I've used this. This is- um, Oh my God. I love it. This is an amazing product called the Total Package. And it's it's a great name because it really is the Total Package. There's like retinol in here for day and night. Everything is in here. And it's this like creamy consistency that's hard to describe, but it's just delicious and it's buttery, but it's not greasy at all. It's just great. And the size is so wonderful for travel. I love it. What else do I love? You Beauty, great brand. What's your favorite You Beauty product? So many things. I really like Super Hydrator. It's really good. It's that glass skin. And then she's got a body version. And now she's got a tinted version for face. It's like the slightest tint. It makes your skin look really good. And isn't that all we want? Like, do That's we, all like, we want. Care how it does it. Speaking of makes your skin look really good, Dr. Loretta. Love this yes. one. So this is her enzyme polish. This stuff's great because it's an enzyme polish. The way I use it is I put it on my face while I'm brushing my teeth or something and let it sit there because it's a chemical exfoliant. So the enzymes in it are like eating away at all the dead stuff on your skin and like cleaning out your pores and all that. 
Then I get in the shower, wash my hair or something. This is while the shower is like steaming my face. So the stuff's sort of sitting more. And then after I've shampooed my hair or whatever, then I polish it off. So I give myself a physical scrub and your skin will just be like polished, basically. I, t I tend to do more chemical exfoliants, but I'm, I am interested to try this. I'm curious because fragrance is a category that I've been really interested to browse for Violet Gray because you all carry a lot of fragrances that you can't find elsewhere. Um, but fragrance is so specific and it's also a category that I feel like is growing a lot. What are the fragrance, either companies or that you're really excited about. Yeah, fragrance has been growing for us in really exciting ways, but fragrance is really tricky because it's so personal, A, and B, it's really hard to sell online. So we do really good fragrance business in the Melrose Place store because it's somewhere where you want to come and discover, you want to smell all the different scents. You want to then walk outside, get a coffee, see how it develops on your wrist, come back and buy it. So it's definitely harder to do that online. But in terms of brands that are new that we're excited about, brought on um, Vireo, which is Yasmin Sewell's line, which is gorgeous. It's like about like really setting your vibration. So it's like bohemian, earthy, mystical, beautiful bottles, really Bottle sense. Yeah, everything about it's gorgeous. Witchy Woo is the one that's the most famous one. And that's about like unleashing your inner witch. <laughs> But all I the bottles have a charged crystal in them. And it's really meant to infuse your atmosphere with something and raise your vibration. And it's just cool. It's it's very today and they're beautiful, artisanal sense. Perfume Head is a brand that we launched exclusively at Violet Gray. And I it's love Perfume Head. Which do you like? Cosmic Cowboy, I really like, and Alone Together. I'm working on formulating a fragrance right now and the fragrance developer they work on that brand and they were t taking me through the behind the scenes of how they got the like just like the sparkling top notes on alone together I was like this is one of the most beautiful fragrances I've ever smelled and he was like and it retails for $420 and I was like you can feel it like you can feel the quality yeah well Daniel Giles the, the founder is really obsessed with the quality of their extra the parfum so it's like the creme de la creme yeah so perfume had like it's got a real LA story. That brand was really born at Melrose Place. They're gorgeous artisanal scents. The names are so good. They're so evocative. I mean, it, I think it's really increasingly important that fragrance tells a story and all of the perfume head scents tell a story. I mean, just like room numbers about a sort of sexy tryst at the Chateau Marmont. There's just, there's storytelling behind all of them. The names are so good. It's just a really chic brand that we're, again, like really proud to be part of the story and it's really born at Violet Gray. So that's a great brand. Lease is a really pretty little brand, L-I-I-S. It's really like like the, the perfume head fragrances are really strong, right? They're really bold. The Lease fragrances are really chill. Like that is your super minimalist is wearing Lease. And so they're like watery and almost like a watercolor. They're really pretty. It's like bold Celine. If you think of that, just the aesthetic or it's like the row. It's just, it's very chill, really pretty, but really minimal. And the bottles, minimal, it's just the whole thing's just very pretty. So that's like a total counterpoint to like Perfume Head, which are big, bold fragrances. Air is a new brand that we have exclusively also. It's A-E-I-R, and they're these two guys who are so cool. They're industrial designers. They're really like stylish and smart and considered and cool. 
and they've created this brand that's a, really like this modern approach to perfumery where it's a luxury fragrance brand that is 100% synthetic. And so mm. a lot of people say, oh, synthetic fragrance, like that doesn't sound nice. That's not luxury. But it's really a different point of view on fragrance because first of all, it's entirely sustainable because they were explaining to me, they're like, okay, this, all these narratives about, oh, like 10,000 roses were picked at dust right. so that they could make two bottles of this perfume, right? And it's like a romantic story and all that. And they're like, we didn't use any roses to make our rose, but also it's the idea, again, goes back to the sort of idea of like, like conceptual way of thinking for their grand rose. They imagined what a rose would be and like built it, right? And there's a note, my favorite detail about this fragrance is that there's a note that smells like an old dollar bill. And I was like, these guys are so cool. And I said, okay, what's that? And they said, yeah, we wanted it to smell like old money. I can honestly smell that though. That immediately evokes a scent for me. It's so interesting, the innovations. Future Society is another brand that I just uh, learned about where they're like basically recreating extinct flowers and yeah, uh, yeah resurrecting new scents. I'm curious about what you think the future holds. Like, where do you think things are going in terms of product innovation? I think that in the future, when we talk about sustainability and when we talk about the journey of a product and when we talk about so-called clean formulations, these things, it's going to be industry standard. They're going to be table stakes. It's not mm -hmm. going to be a special benefit that you call out, although there, I think there will always be room to innovate and evolve and have a new thing to talk about. But in terms, it's not going to be like a something you're trying to get credit for. Yeah, I think these things are table stakes. I think sustainability, that story is not ever going to go away. Um, right. But we can improve upon it, right? I think that any brand right now, especially a new brand, I mean, new brands have no excuse. But also, I think new brands are being created so thoughtfully that it's part of the consideration, right? It's like, what is a sustainability story? How are you innovating? And also, like, the thing that's so great, when you talk to founders, you get this distinct feeling that they all want to share the progress they've made with other people. It's not a competition. They all want to learn from each other and share this information of, hey, I figured out a way to do this. Oh, wow, cool. I figured out a way to do that. There are other places where they can get competitive. But in terms of figuring out better, more thoughtful ways to produce our products and brands that aren't making those considerations are really going to be left out in the cold. In terms of science and innovation, I think that on the one hand, you've got people who are really looking for products that deliver these very efficacious, tangible results. Definitely our client wants stuff that like makes it happen, right? But then again, you've also got really beautiful products that are just luxurious and just nice. And it's about sort of sensorial, tactile ex experience. And so there's room for that too. So yeah, I don't, I don't worry about there being ever a time when there isn't innovation. As we all evolve and have new use cases for things, the products follow. You are someone that's very busy. You lead a big team. You do a lot. How do you unwind? How do I unwind? I mean, honestly, I need to get better at that. I'm good in the summer. In the summer, I get a lot more exercise. I play tennis. I swim. I'm out a lot more. In the winter, it's literally like Netflix and chill. But yeah, un like, how do I relax? I don't know. I'm just working all the time right now. I'm not relaxing a lot. I try to get really good sleep. I'm very protective of my sleep. And I also really love going out to dinner with my husband and just having a glass of wine and creating boundaries. I'm in New York. A lot of our team's in LA. 
Um, so six o'clock here is 3 p.m. there. It's prime time. I usually work till 7, 7.30, but I really try to turn it off. I'm very protective of my weekend also. Like even if I'm working on a weekend, I will schedule all the emails. Nobody's receiving an email from me on the weekend. They're going to get it 8 a.m. Monday. I live for vacation, by the way. I'm very, very serious about vacation. So play hard, work hard. Yes. And when do you feel most beautiful? When my mom is looking at me. Yeah, it's just true. Nobody loves you like your mom. And it sounds like she's been such an incredible um, role model and driving force in, in your life and this incredible career you've had. Thank you. She's she's pretty awesome. I really look up to her. She is a mature woman and she's still just like killing it in her career. She's still so relevant in, in her industry and making so many amazing things happen. She gave me this really good advice once that you at the end of the day, you need to be proud of yourself. You need to be proud of how you handled things. Yeah, she's a great role model. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I feel so inspired by our conversation and just love everything you're doing at Violet Gray. So thank you. Oh my God. Well, I'm so honored to, to be talking to you and this has been so much fun. You'll know real when you get it. It will say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things that you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. That was my conversation with Sarah. I have so many new products that I need to try that I'm excited to try. Sometimes I can get a little bit jaded, but then conversations like this remind me that there's still so much innovation happening. I have linked to all of the fabulous products we've discussed in the show notes so you can check those out. And I'll be back next week with a new episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.